0: Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. All right, so the pandemic has had a lot of interesting effects on society and the way that we all live our lives. Animal shelters, have been cleared out since so many people have adopted pets. Gene sales are way down, and athletic wear sales are, are way, way up with so many people working from home. And uh, most international travel is not really an option right now. So many Americans have and still are exploring the U.S. from coast to coast. I think, Lauren, both you and I uh, have done our part yeah. on these trends. <laughs> you adopted two cats. I
1: did. I got them. They were... Virginia, they were so itty-bitty. I got them from a trailer park in the middle of nowhere in Florida. They were a pound and a half each. They're brother and sister, one is a gray, like very, I'm going to use this word, everybody's going to think of a cat lady, but he's very handsome, <laughs> like very, very handsome. And then the other one is a little tortie cat. And so now they're massive. They're like over 12 pounds. Oh, wow. And they... It was such a great time to get cats. My one, the girl cat, Dolly, who's the, the tortie, she literally is a dog, and whenever she hears the cars come in, like, in front of my house, she, like, is so excited, and she runs to the door, and she just, like, starts meowing. She's like, pet me. I've missed you all day. <laughs> and then my gray cat, the boy, there's their names are Dolly and Joe, for George Jones, and Dolly Parton, obviously. Of course. And then um, the gray one is such a little mama's boy. Like, he just loves... Anytime I... sit or lay down wherever he is in the house he just like finds me and like beelines and he's like oh my god (laughs) so they're just like i mean really great things come out of the pandemic
0: good things did indeed come out of the pandemic i do feel for all the animals that now like their humans are going back to work like they're (laughs) alone at home but uh yeah speaking of all those trends i know i certainly contributed my fair share to uh investing in yoga pants over the course of, of the pandemic uh and i i have been doing a little bit more traveling in the u.s i just got back a couple days ago from zion national park if you haven't been go i was blown away by just the beauty out there like i i knew that america was diverse and Offered crazy scenery. I have never seen anything like I saw in Zion National Park. Just absolutely gorgeous, breathtaking, so different than the East Coast. Uh, A lot fewer trees, a lot more cactuses, but just gorgeous. So, anyway, get out, enjoy nature. Hope hope you can have some adventures this summer. Or just stay in with your cats. Or stay in with your cats. Yeah, (laughs) don't leave those pets alone that you adopted. (laughs) They need you. (laughs) All right, Lauren, what do we have queued up on today's show?
1: Up on today's Problematic Women, it is all about the Supreme Court. We talk with the Harriet. Heritage Foundation's legal fellow, Amy Swearer, about the decision to protect faith-based adoption agencies and some of the big news coming from SCOTUS this week and beyond. We also talk with heritage health care expert Marie Fishbaugh about the Supreme Court's decision to uphold Obamacare. And as always,
0: we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women,
1: please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference.
0: All right, let's get to it. I am so pleased to welcome back to the show, Heritage Foundation legal fellow Amy Swearer. Amy, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back in the studio. I know, it feels all surreal. Here is it. <laughs> It's crazy. It's been a long time since we can actually sit across from one another. All right. So let's jump into some SCOTUS news. There's been a lot coming out of the Supreme Court recently. Uh, so let's begin with a recent ruling that's really been declared as a big win for religious freedom. The case is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. Emmy, uh, can you just explain this case to us? What exactly was being decided here? Sure. So this is a First Amendment free exercise
2: case. And I think to sum it up, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this later, it's more of a narrow victory for religious liberty. Um, but basically, you, you're dealing with uh, the city of Philadelphia in an organization called Catholic Social Services. Um, so Catholic Social Services uh, has been in Philadelphia serving that city's needy children in various different ways since like the late 1700s. Um, and for the last century or so, this has included contracting with the city uh, to place children with foster parents. Um, so to you know, set up that, that interaction between people who want to be foster parents and, and children who need foster parents. Um, so they've, again, they've been doing this for about 100 years. In 2018, again, after an entire century of doing this, uh, Philadelphia uh, suddenly discovers through uh, a newspaper article, oh, my goodness, wait, you're Catholic. You follow <laughs> Catholic teaching. Uh, you won't place children with same-sex couples or unmarried couples or single couples. Um, but the big thing was you, you won't place them with same-sex couples. Um, So the city terminated Catholic Social Services contract as a foster care placement agency um, because it said that this violated a city ordinance on non-discrimination on the basis of sexuality. Um, So now keep in mind there had never been a complaint about Catholic Social Services foster care services. Um, You know, everyone roundly agreed they'd done a very good job with this. Um, But there had also never been a same-sex couple that had ever Approached Catholic Social Services about becoming foster parents, um, and also had any same-sex couple done so, or you know, unmarried couple, single person, etc. Their policy was to say, hey, you know, we, we can't do this. We can't affirm this based on our religious beliefs. But they would have politely referred them to one of several dozens of other agencies in Philadelphia that would have gladly uh, taken them on and helped them become foster parents. So it's not as though you know, same-sex couples were left without any other options for, mm-hmm. for becoming foster parents. Um, it was really just the, the city of Philadelphia um, suddenly realizing,
0: oh, wait, we're dealing with Catholics. Oh, no. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> wow. All right. So, as as you say, uh, this was actually ended up being a pretty narrow mm-hmm. ruling for religious freedom. What do you mean by that? Um, so, so
2: not to get into the weeds here, but this goes back to a 1990 uh, Supreme Court case called Employment Division v. Smith, um, and and basically what the court did in Smith is they set some rules for interpreting claims that a law or policy burdens. The free exercise of religion. Um, so it was a very controversial ruling, uh, but basically it said that laws that you know, clearly burden the exercise of religion are fine as long as they're neutral and generally applicable. So what happened uh, in this case in Fulton uh, is that the court took a very narrow approach and they just said, well, we don't think Philadelphia's actions are generally applicable. Um, you know, So they, they took this very narrow route and basically there was a provision in the foster care contract uh, that gave city officials discretion to make uh, exceptions to this non-discrimination rule. They'd never made exceptions. They're certainly not keen on making exceptions for Catholic social services. But because theoretically they could make exceptions, um, the court said it's not a generally applicable law um, and so therefore – um, you know it's it's not uh it, it violates the the first amendment under you know strict scrutiny et cetera et cetera um, now what this means is that all the city has to do is essentially go back and rewrite the contract to remove any you know the theoretical exceptions that could be made and now they get to come back and say, well look uh we we did what you said this is now generally applicable no one can, can have exceptions and the problem is going to be um, that once that happens because the court didn't decide on any you know is this neutral is smith the the appropriate test here um you know even if something is neutral and generally applicable does the does the city still have to show um you know that that there is that there is a a very good reason for not accommodating them, which is what you would think would be the case under the mm-hmm. First Amendment. Um, you know, the, the fact that there are dozens of other agencies, um, you know, this is, this is not destroying the ability of, of same-sex couples to become foster parents, um, if we allow Catholics to be Catholics and to continue to, to, you know, uphold the Catholic teaching but mm-hmm. still serve the city of Philadelphia and, and the needy children. Um, so unfortunately, a you know, it's, it's a, it's a narrow win, um, I think this is going to end up quite like if you remember the nuns from the Affordable Care Act case, from the Obamacare case, um, where they just kept having to come back um, time and time again. You know, I, I think, unfortunately, this, this is not likely to be the last time we see Catholic social services in front of the Supreme Court um, you know, begging for the free exercise of, of their religious liberties.
0: Wow. Wow. All right. So we haven't seen the end of this. So, I mean, I was going to ask you, what are the broader implications for, you know, I know we've seen this in in Boston with social services as well, mm-hmm. Catholic social services there and in other cities across the country. But really what you're saying is this ruling probably has very, very little impact on them at all.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, so, again, if you, if you have some other organizations, uh, you know, where they, they have these, um, discretionary clauses. You know, I, I think what you might see is in the immediate future, cities that that still want to, you know, d- discriminate against uh, religious organizations, remove those clauses, and then be like, "Ha ha! See, we we did the magic things, um, and now you're no longer protected. This is generally applicable." Um, but I, you know, I, I think on the whole, this is going to be something that continues to play out until the courts. You know, digs deeper into this and, and really gets into the merits of, look, what are the limits of the government's ability to burden the free exercise of religion when it has many other options for accomplishing
0: you know its, its stated goals of non-discrimination? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. All right. Well, so there's been so much coming out of SCOTUS. I want to chat a little bit about another First Amendment case, mm-hmm. um, this one involving free speech and a cheerleader. Uh, From Pennsylvania. Uh, Yes, the the angry cheerleader case. (laughs) The angry cheerleader case, yes. All right. So explain to us what what exactly happened here. Uh, So like you said, this is –
2: it's another First Amendment case, but this one is about free speech. And specifically, it's about whether and to what extent a public school can punish off-campus student speech. Um, So the the short version of this, this is one of, you know, the the things where you're the fact pattern and you're like, how does this end up in the Supreme Court? (laughs) Um, But the short version is that you you had a a student who became upset that she didn't make the varsity cheerleading squad. Um, So over the weekend, you know, not during school hours, not on campus, um, she posts a couple images to Snapchat, you know, the the app where you can post images and they they disappear after 15 Mm -hmm. seconds, um, containing both vulgar language and... um, a vulgar gesture that I, I won't elaborate on, <laughs> um, and she uses this to express her frustration with the school's cheerleading program. Um, she she sends it to. Uh, basically a bunch of her friends who are also students and non-students. Um, and the, the school gets wind of this, um, you know, the, the cheerleading coaches get wind of this. And ultimately she is, uh, as a result of, of her off-campus speech, suspended from the cheerleading program for a year. So, you know, she's she saying, look, I'm being punished by a public school, which consider, you know, state agents here um, for my off-campus speech. And you can't do that. Um, And so that is the issue that the court is deciding here, that that extent to which off-campus student speech can be regulated and punished.
0: Wow. So, I mean, it is surprising uh, that we have something like this rise all the way to the level of the Supreme Court. But in many ways, it makes sense. This is a big issue with young people increasingly using social media to voice their opinions about school, about employers. Uh, This is actually really
2: relevant. Right. So, so this is one of those cases where, you know, you look at it and you're like, the fact pattern is, you know, I, I think actually at a, a friend text me this morning, like, this is such a silly case. I'm like, it, it's a silly fact pattern, um, but it has very broad implications. Because yeah. what the, the court actually held here um, is that off-campus student speech, um, you know, is covered by many of the same First Amendment protections as any other, you know, adult non-student speech. uh, And and that essentially, you know, unless the school can show that there is some, you know, serious impact on the school community, obviously, you know, things like combating like rampant bullying, um, specific targeted threats at people, um, you know, things that are going to seriously upset the balance of community within the school, um, that it is protected speech. And so while in this case, you know, it's – uh, it's a, an angry student, um, fairly immaturely dealing with, you know, not making varsity cheerleading. Uh, the the implications go to to many other things. You know, any situation where you have, I mean, th- think of all the controversial uh, aspects of speech that that we deal with in this country. Um, that that any student uh, who is off campus, who is speaking to a private audience in whatever capacity, um, that that is protected speech. And I think overall, this is this is a good thing that is going to have broad implications um, for you know, a, a lot of students and a lot of contexts outside of cheerleading.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brandy Levy, so she won that case uh, in her favorite. Justices ruled. Uh, what was, do you know the ruling on that case?
2: Um, so I, I believe it was 8-1. Okay. Um, so you had Thomas dissented. Um, and, and this was actually interesting. I, I don't think a lot of people saw this coming. You know, He, he looked at um, sort of the, the – I mean him being very text history and tradition, he's like in, – in his view, there is a longstanding tradition of allowing schools to sort of um, – Police student behavior, mm. um, you know, as sort of like the stand-in parent, and that we have this long history of allowing that. That, that seems to be what when the Fourteenth Amendment was passed, um, you know, that that this was at the time something that would have been permitted. Yeah. Um, so you know, he was sort of the 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 lone the lone dissent there. Um, but I, you know, I think on the whole, this is good for student speech, and a lot of the controversies that that will continue to to play out. Uh, within
0: uh, American society. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, want to touch base on uh, one other case moving up to the college level uh, that was uh, ruled on earlier this week. The Supreme Court issued a big decision in, involving uh, college athletics, and the court ruled actually 9-0 to zero against the National College Athletic Association, uh, saying that they're not allowed to cap any benefits that are tied to education, for students, so you know, this has been an ongoing debate. You know, should college athletes be compensated? Uh, and so, so this isn't actually saying that they'll receive a paycheck, but it is right. saying like they could get you know a, a new laptop or increased internship right. opportunities, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. So, um, in some respects, it was a shot across the bow uh, to to the uh, NCAA. Um, you know, but but I, I think too, I think a lot of people have misunderstood this as saying you know college athletes can can get paid, that they're no longer amateurs. Um, it's much more limited than than that. Um, like you said, it, it has to do with educational related benefits. Um, so I, I think those are going to be broadened uh, for, for student athletes. Um, you know as a former student athlete myself, I, I know how, how burdensome some of those restrictions and, and how arbitrary some of those restrictions could be. Um, you know I, I think it's a step forward for a lot of athletes in in the sense of there is some of that d- disparity between you know th- what money the the uh, NCAA takes in and how much of it actually goes to benefit students. Um, but you know again, this is one of those cases. This is just the beginning of what I think will be a, a long, long line of similar cases sort of building out on that you know i think this was just the the first like i said shot across about the, the the ncaa
0: yeah all right, so Amy, what are some of the cases that we're still waiting to hear uh, hear rulings on this term? So I think one of the big ones is um, it's actually two cases
2: together, but you know we generally refer to it as Thomas More Law Center v. Bonta. Um, so this is a case at a California. Um, you know, once once again, the the, the Catholic uh, agency is getting hit over here, um, where the state of California wants to mandate. That um, all of these charities and and nonprofits disclose to the state their donor lists. Um, now, now the fear is that states like California will say, "Oh no, no, this is private information," and, and then it will get leaked. And then once you know you have those donor lists out there, we've seen this before, um, where those donors become sort of targeted by people who don't like you know, the the services or the the entities to which they're donating. Um, And so there's there's a very real fear there and that the state otherwise doesn't have a good reason uh, for these lists to be disclosed. Um, So that was argued earlier in this term. We're still waiting for an opinion uh, out on that. Um, But that will have very, very big implications in the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, looking even further forward to next term, I think one of the big things on, on my radar as someone in the Second Amendment world um, is certainly New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. I, I think at this point the, the other party is Corlette, but it's basically versus New York. Um, and, and that is a Second Amendment case dealing with the question of, you know, what is the extent of the right to carry a firearm outside the home? Um, because New York is one of a minority of states that essentially says, like, you as an ordinary law-abiding citizen, you don't have a real right to just carry for self-defense outside the home, you need to prove to us that you have, you know, good cause above and beyond that. Um, and so, in practice, most uh, ordinary, especially in New York City uh, residents, cannot defend themselves with a with a firearm outside the home. Um, you know, and then on top of that, you have massive bribery scandals associated with that because it turns out, you know, when when it's up to the discretion of you know some random individuals, it. it Lends itself to those bribery schemes, Um, but that will have, I I think, huge implications for tens of millions of Americans who want to defend themselves outside the home, who are looking at the Second Amendment going, it says I have a right to bear – arms, mm-hmm. um, you know, and in, and in this case, the, the the plaintiffs in that case, they're not saying, you know, look, it needs to be permitless carry. They're, they're saying we'll jump through any hoops, any training, any you know permitting you want us to, but you have to promise that at the end of it, you're going to give us the permit, yeah. um, you know, that, that there needs to be some way for us to defend ourselves outside the home. Um, so that that I think will have tremendous implications in the Second Amendment world. Um, and so that's the big one on, on my radar uh, for this coming October yeah.
0: term. Well, and as a Second Amendment an expert yourself and a concealed carry permit holder. I know that that's yes, very important. Yes, yes. Um,
2: this is my opportunity. Public service announcement: <laughs> The wait. District of Columbia is a shall issued jurisdiction. It's not cheap or easy, but if you jump through all of the hoops, the district will give you a concealed carry permit. <laughs> Too many people do not know this because that did not used to be the case. Um, so this has been your public service announcement oh, with Second perfect. Amendment Amy.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Amy. No, I really am truly impressed. Sometimes I'll brag to my friends and be like, yeah, I know a girl who has a concealed carry permit in D.C. And they're like, wait, what? Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm hoping that that becomes less of their responses.
2: People are like, yeah, of course you can get a concealed carry permit in D.C. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, by the, the end of next year in the next term, it's you can get a concealed carry permit anywhere, you know, yeah. that, that you as an ordinary law-abiding citizen, um, you know, hopefully taking on training yourself, knowing what you're doing, um, you know, being responsible with that gun, but that you you can defend yourselves and others in public.
0: Absolutely. All right, Amy, before I let you go, I do have to ask you about Justice Stephen Breyer. He's 82. There's a lot of rumors about him potentially retiring. Any hot takes on this?
2: Um, your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. Uh, y- you know, it's... It, it's certainly we live in a world where there are political considerations for things like that um you know but but also he has life tenure um mm-hmm. you know he there no one can force him to step down um that's a decision he has to make um you know as far as I know he he still enjoys what he does he you know he seems to be very much with it um just as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was up until the, the very end you know writing writing yeah. opinions from her hospital bed um you know so it, it certainly you know, should, should he retire, that would have dramatic implications, I think. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see the circus from the other side, um, mm-hmm. which will be a bit of a change. But um, yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to read the tea leaves there. But it is, uh, you know, something something to keep an
0: eye on. For sure. Amy, thank you. Always a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Heritage Foundation healthcare expert Marie Fishpaw as we discuss the Supreme Court's decision to uphold Obamacare. But first, all right, raise your hand if you spend way too much time on YouTube. You can't see me, but my hand is raised. (laughs) If you're anything like me, you enjoy researching interesting topics on YouTube or just simply being entertained. But sometimes it's really hard to know what information is well-researched and actually trustworthy. That's where The Daily Signal comes in. We are constantly posting new videos that are designed to keep you up-to-date on the news that you care about and give you the data and facts succinctly. The Daily Signal YouTube channel features policy explainer videos, documentaries, entertaining clips from podcast interviews, and so much more. Go ahead and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel today so you can stay informed and never miss out on the news that matters. I am so pleased to welcome to the show Marie Fishpaw, the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Marie, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So we just wrapped up uh, a great conversation a little earlier in the show with Amy Swearer about some of the big news coming out of the Supreme Court this term. And one of the biggest rulings so far has been in relation to the Supreme Court's decision to uphold Obamacare. You are a health care expert. So if you would just explain what exactly the Supreme Court was deciding the legality of here in this uh,
3: Obamacare case? Sure. So the Supreme Court was asked to consider a case that many people either hoped or feared, depending on how you feel about Obamacare, could throw out the entire law. It's a pretty technical, fairly complex argument, but in essence, after Congress got rid of the individual mandate, which was a mandate uh, to either buy insurance or pay a fine. Uh, Some thought there was a good chance that the entire law should come down. And the Supreme Court didn't even really go there. They just said, we're not going to hear this case. And so the law still stands. Um, And so the question now is what comes next? So the ruling
0: uh, was 72. Were you surprised at, at how any of the justices
3: ruled? that particularly. And I think the case is is more fundamentally a very good reminder that Congress needs to come back to health reform. They're the ones that can both change this law and then decide where we should go next. And – both um, the the left and the conservatives have a, a really sharp difference and a good idea about where we should go next. So where should we go next? Well, <laughs> we should not. We should start by where we should not go. Okay, let's we'll start there. Um, so we should not go um, towards where the left's plans are, which are they first. They it, I'd say it's twofold, but but it all comes back to bigger government control, bigger bureaucratic control between you and your doctor. Um, and I think that's a fundamentally flawed approach. We saw under Obamacare what we get a sort of a case study of, of the place the left has been driving towards for decades. And we saw uh, costs go up, premiums more than doubled um, in the time the law has been in effect. Choices have collapsed. Um, choices are down uh, because uh, in, in many cases um, insurers had to tighten up what they were offering since Obamacare's heavy mandates really got in the way. And part of that, you know, one of the big things the defenders of the law say is, is good about it is that it helped um, the sickest and people with pre existing conditions get care. In fact, I think the opposite is true. Um, In order to control costs, insurers have – if they're stuck in a hard place on a lot of government mandates, they have to restrict your ability to see a doctor. So what we've seen is a lot of people got an insurance card, but they may not be able to see a doctor they need. There's a study published on The Daily Signal by John Goodman. That really gets into some of the heartbreaking stories of people with just um, really tragic health conditions and them not being able to see the specialists they need. There is no Obamacare plan, um, Goodman finds, in Texas that that ta- that offers access to the best cancer clinics, um, the best medical providers. So I think step one is – don't um, build on failure.
0: Hmm.
3: Um, and that's exactly what Democrats would like to do, which I'm happy to get into if you want me to.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that because I think so many Americans are wondering after this ruling, OK, what does this mean for me personally? What does this mean for my family?
3: Unfortunately, right now it means absolutely nothing. Hmm. Um, so if you're on Obamacare, still on Obamacare. Um, if you don't like your choices and you don't like want to pay those costs and you're not thinking you're getting much value or help out of it, you're still in that bucket. The less solution to that is to pour more money in Obamacare. So uh, they just passed a law um, that temporarily gives – sort of pours more taxpayer money into this fundamentally flawed program, which is the only way really to, to overcome some of the challenges I'm talking about, at least in terms of the premiums being unaffordable. So um, the remarkably about this, um, the – The law they just passed gave subsidies to rich people for the very first time. If you want details on that, you can see a paper – or excuse me, an op-ed published by Doug Badger on The Daily Signal. Um, But in essence, um, this is a pretty remarkable shift because this is where the left ultimately wants to go. They want to put everyone on a government program. They want to outlaw private coverage. Uh, giving taxpayer-funded subsidies to the rich is both unnecessary. It's not going to accomplish anything. It's not like we'll see a whole lot more people insured. But it's definitely an indication of where they want to go. And as conservatives, we think that there are problems in the health system that need to be tackled, um, but they need to be tackled by removing government barriers, not adding more. So, at a Supreme Court level,
0: is this case done, or are, are we going to see Obamacare be a
3: continued uh, debated? Issue potentially at the Supreme Court again. I, I think the people who brought the case would like to bring it in, in a different way and to have it considered. But really, it's I think that case just reminds us that we need to come back to health reform in Congress. It's Congress that can fix this. Mm. Um, the courts could, you know, create more space for that, but um, it's still Congress that has to come back to this. And this is where conservatives have been really focused and working is to come up with recommendations to Congress um, that. But put down real solutions to the problems people face that go far beyond Obamacare. Um, and so we, we have solutions that would lower costs, improve choices, help the sick get the care they need. And really it comes down to putting patients, families in control of their health care.
0: Well, and I know I've had this conversation multiple times with my sister. We've talked about, uh, you know, it just seems crazy that healthcare is as complicated and in the weeds as it is. And, you know, we both at different times have uh, been in positions where we were looking uh, to buy healthcare, or family members were looking to buy healthcare privately. And gosh, when you do that, you just feel like you're, you know, entering some sort of black hole. It's, it's very confusing. Nothing seems straightforward, it's very expensive. So, what Are maybe one or two just briefly of those solutions that conservatives are proposing to say, okay, this is actually how we can give Americans strong uh, and affordable options
3: to health care. Yeah. Well, first of all, it shouldn't be so confusing, and one of the reasons it's confusing is that the the federal laws far beyond Obamacare have really put. Bureaucrats in control. So insurance companies are in control of the Obamacare market. They're making so much profit compared to other markets off this plan. So, um, I, you know, I think that's we we do have to look at those incentives. Um, but, you know, you mentioned confusing and when you're trying to buy health care, it should not be confusing. You should know the price of what you're trying to pay. If you're working with insurance, what they'll compensate for you to do. Well, it's really hard to know the price right now. The Trump administration took some steps towards uh, addressing that. They have a couple rules that are slowly going to um, go into effect saying hospitals have to tell you what they're going to charge you. Insurance companies have to let you know what they'll, what they'll pay you if you get care. Um, and, you know, I think that's a good step in the right direction. What's amazing is even if you choose lower cost care that works for you, um, you're not going to share in any savings. It's all going to go back to your insurance company if you're working with an insurer, and most people do. So we need to get those. We need to make sure you know what the price is before you go in. We need to make sure you can sa- share in any savings. Um, so those would be two steps in the right direction. Um you know, I think there's a longer conversation to be had about people who are sick, who are who are not working for anybody, or not excuse me, not getting their uh, coverage through their employer. That's a different story, um, and I think that's where a lot of the problem is. We don't we just have all the wrong flawed incentives, and so part of our our proposal is to. Take the the money currently going to, to big insurance, currently going to other um, places where it could be used better and give it to um, governors to figure out how to best serve lower income people who are sick and needy. It's a model that was used before Obamacare. It needed a little more funding. So this takes care of that. Um, But it really provides the freedom, too, for people to buy a product that makes sense for them. And so we've had an estimate put on that uh, by independent scorers, and they find that it increases coverage because, you know, when people have a product they want to buy, they're more likely to do it. And it also lowers premiums, another good reason to Mm -hmm. buy coverage. So um, with that, you know I think those are examples of where we need to go. And if you want to learn more about where we should go, um, I would check out healthcarechoices2020.org, which provides a, the, a overview and a detailed uh, uh, set of recommendations.
0: Wonderful. Marie, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on and breaking down this complex issue. My
3: pleasure. Always great to come here.
0: It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. So if you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Doug Blair, Rob Bluey, and me, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out The Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning.
1: Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, Time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to...
0: Kara Dansky of the Women Human Rights Campaign and Lear Keith of the Women's Liberation Front.
1: Kara and Lear both lead feminist organizations, and there is likely a lot that we disagree upon. But we do agree upon a few very important things one of those being that biological men should not be allowed in women's restrooms or other female-only spaces. Unfortunately, the Loudoun County School District in Northern Virginia is considering allowing any biological male who identifies as a woman to have access to girls' locker rooms, restrooms, and sports teams. But Kara and Lear are using their platforms to speak out against this. On Monday, the two feminist leaders sent a letter to the Loudoun County Virginia School Board expressing their disapproval of biological men being allowed in female-only spaces. They wrote, quote, We are the two leading radical feminist activist organizations operating in the United States. Our understanding is that the board is poised to obliterate single sex spaces in schools throughout Loudoun County, Virginia. If this is correct, we are appalled and disgusted at the direction in which this county is heading.
0: I don't think you can say it. Any more clearly than that, I actually attended the school board meeting in Loudoun County uh, on Tuesday night that was discussing this policy. It's called Policy 8040. It would do a few different things, but it would essentially allow any any biological male who says, hey, I'm a woman, to enter locker rooms, restrooms, to play on women's sports. And it requires teachers to call uh, a male by, uh, she or her or, um, a female by he or him if, if they identify as uh not their biological sex. So, a lot of parents are very very outraged by this. Uh, yeah, I Yeah, didn't people get arrested at that school board meeting? Two people did get arrested. Uh it, it was wild. They they started out by, you know, kind of saying, "All right, you know, you're not allowed to cheer during the meeting because, you know, we have they had almost 250 people who signed up to give public comment during this meeting. Everybody had 60 seconds to share. They got through 51 people before they ended public comments uh, because they said people were not allowed to cheer. And so that happened once. There was kind of a noisy, loud interruption And then about 45 minutes later, it happened again, and the school board shut down the public comments. They left the room uh, and the crowd. They were fired up. They were upset because they want their voices to be heard. These are parents who are concerned uh, for their child's education, for their child's safety. Uh, And they're frustrated after I, I spoke with many parents who said, you know, after a year of distance learning and my child's education really falling way behind, I want the school board to be focused on getting my child caught up in education and not on pushing a woke agenda. Wow. Virginia, that must have been
1: so interesting. So grateful that you went there to cover that event.
0: It was a wild time, but very, very grateful to have been there and uh, and to hear from so many parents who are just genuinely concerned. Well, we'll definitely be covering what's happening in Loudoun County in the coming weeks,
1: but... That's going to be it for today and this edition of Problematic
0: Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast
1: world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a
0: great week and we'll see you back here
3: next Thursday.